Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey everyone, me again, Laszlo Montgomery, here with another jewel taken from the boundless reservoir of Chinese history. I wanted to introduce today one of those topics that I offer up from time to time. I'm guessing most of you aren't familiar with this topic of new shu, new and you, with that umlaut you, the two dots, meaning woman or female. This character for female pretty much since the time of the inscriptions found on the Shang Dynasty oracle bones shows a human figure in a submissive pose. Shu means book, or in this case, writing or script. So Niu Shu means women's writing or women's script. It is the written form of a certain flavor of the local Xiangnan Tuhua dialect called Chengguan Tuhua. Xiang is the abbreviation of Hunan, and Nan means south. Tuhua means local dialect. This is one of many local dialects of southern Hunan. The lingua franca of the general region was the Xiang dialect, but even that would be divided up as each town or village might have their own little variants. I've heard this so many times in the course of reading about history, about the status of women in Chinese society, at least up to the end of the Qing. They didn't have it so good. Well, that's a well-known fact. They walked around in bound feet that were planted firmly in the cement shoes of rural Confucian values and ideology. Today's CHP episode looks at an aspect of Chinese history and culture that is so small, even the experts could miss it. You might call this a local story. It happened in one place only. didn't happen in any of the brand-name cities we mention so often at the CHP. Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, Chengdu, Nanjing, Hangzhou. No place like that. It happened in a few villages, a few tun, way up in the north, northeastern part of Jiangyong County. This county is located in the very southern part of Hunan province, the Guangxi side of southern Hunan, not the Guangdong side. Guilin is right over the western border from Jiangyong County. In certain villages of Jiangyong, there lived generations of women who were caught up in all the worst aspects of living under the yoke of those times when women had no voice or control over their lives. And you know how it is. The more rural and remote the places geographically, the more conforming and superstitious people tended to be. And the towns and villages that made up Jiangyong County were about as rural and remote as one could get in China. You're really deep in the bowel there. Education was rarely, if ever, wasted on girls. Even in the most high-born families, a girl's education was usually limited to the good old Hong, as it was called way back in the day, needlework, weaving textiles, embroidery, sewing, that stuff. They had the same idea down in Jiangyong County. A girl was born, her feet were bound at seven, as long as she was part of the 90% who survived the foot-binding custom. Her circumstances would later be weighed 
And at a time not of her choosing, she would be married out to another family in another village, which for 2,000 years was always a crapshoot at best. In those days, 25 or 50 miles away was the other side of the world. The narrative of the tortured and suffering daughter-in-law is all too well known, and those girls from down in Jiangyong County were caught up in all of that. And back when the story takes place, Ming, Qing dynasties, 90% of the people in China lived like them. Now, 90% didn't bind their daughter's feet. Remember the Hakka people, for example, they didn't, they didn't go in for that thing. But as far as following the traditional customs of the day, as far as women's place in society, Jiang Yong was kind of a microcosm of the general situation. Except they had one thing special about them that nobody else had. Many of the ladies of Jiang Yong were unique in all of China, perhaps all the world. I'd have to check on that. What human being doesn't know about the therapeutic powers of mutual commiseration? Although these women were all railroaded into a kind of lifestyle that was not of their personal choosing, they still managed to eke out a life that still retained dignity and significance. No one knows exactly when this all started, but it was probably around since the Ming Dynasty. Some people believe it began even earlier. Someone from Jiangyong County, maybe it was a single person, or perhaps it was a group of extraordinary women who chanced to all be born in the same generation. It's doubtful the truth will ever be known. They created the secret writing system, and it was passed down from one generation of women to the next. The most outstanding characteristic about this language was that men never learned it, and it was never taught to them. It was a secret to these women only, and they used it as a medium to communicate in writing with each other and to express themselves in ways that well, would never be allowed in their rigid social circumstances. Nushu wasn't something limited to women in China. It was limited only to these women who lived in a portion of an obscure county in one of China's more rustic provinces, at least at that time. You know, the language almost died out completely within the last few decades only. As I said, we don't know. Han, Tang, Song, Ming, no one knows when this began. No Shannongs in this story to help put a timestamp on the legends. It was around in the late Ming. That much we're pretty sure. The people who wrote this language were mostly Yao minority people who lived side by side with the Hans of Hunan. They intermarried all the time. The Yao people usually lived in higher elevations. Surprise, surprise. Today, there are about eh, two and a half to three million Yao in China. In Vietnam, there's also about half a million Yao. In Vietnam, they're known by the same name, but they spell it D-A-O. The Yao people had no written script of their own, like the Turks or Manchus and Mongols had. Nushu was a phonetic script, 600 to 800 symbols that were comprised of dots, horizontal strokes, arcs, and slashes. Each character represented a single syllable. Including all the variants, there were as many as 1,600 characters that made up the Niu Shu script. To anyone who could read Chinese characters, when you look at Niu Shu writing, you'd know right away these are not Han Chinese characters, or kanji as they say in Japan. But when you focus in on some, you'll see here and there some 
piece of a Chinese character or something that looks familiar. About 80% of the new Shu script is a variation of one Chinese character or another. Some appear as if they're simply italicized characters. It's read top to bottom, right to left, sort of like old-style Chinese newspapers. Jiangyong may have been rural and remote, but it was located on rather fertile land with decent weather. So although few people got rich, at least they lived in a land where there was always food on the table, humble as it may have been most all the time. I won't say they were the only ones in China, but something that characterized the young women of this region in Jiangyong County in and around Shangjiangshu town was that they had a particular love of poetry and singing and knew how to enjoy the whole camaraderie that I guess village girls all might have felt for each other, each knowing way in advance what fate awaited them, each knowing for better or for worse, they were all in this one same boat. This area, Shangjiangshu, was maybe the epicenter of Nushu culture. In any case, that's where the center is today for Nushu Wenhua the culture of which I speak of. That classic bucolic scene of simple village girls all hanging out, doing their needlework and singing and reciting poetry. You could get that anywhere in any village in China, I suppose. But the bonds created between the village girls in these parts of Jiangyong County were particularly strong. From time immemorial, the women of Jiangyong County practiced a kind of sworn sisterhood custom called mate. The generations of girls in a particular village would join these sisterhoods, swear oaths, and this was a solemn way to bind themselves to each other. Since none of the girls went to school, they mostly hung out with these same sworn sisters every day. It's said that when the time came for a newlywed bride to leave her home and begin her new life, leaving her was the most difficult of emotions to endure. The strongest possible human bond was between two laotong. Using the traditional methods of the day, matchmakers were called in and went to great lengths to match the right girls up in a laotong relationship, which was contractual. Lao means old, tong means same. Old same down in southern Hunan and in north, northeast Jiangyong County, where the Yongming River flowed, there was nothing that could top this most sacred expression of sisterhood. This bond they created was stronger than anything else in the woman's life and lasted till death. While a girl might belong to a sworn sisterhood comprising of all the girls in her village, she would only have one single laotong, if she had one at all. And this was a Hunan thing, the whole idea of Laotongs. The sisterhood would slowly dissolve as the girls all married out of the village and began the next chapter in their often sad lives. But you see, it wasn't sad. Amidst the despair, these women of this corner of Jiangyongxian created this secret language and channel to communicate with each other openly, holding nothing back, and no one except them could take part in this activity. And if nothing else... They received solace that the struggles and dreams of all the women in this sisterhood were similar or the same. Not everyone had a laotong arranged for them, though. It wasn't like Facebook where you just like sent a friend request. All the stars had to line up in order for two suitable girls to be chosen 
to enter into this special Lao Tong relationship. Aside from the companionship and everything else a Lao Tong meant, it enhanced the girl's overall brand when her parents started keeping an eye out for a husband, preferably one much higher born than they were. A husband's family might look keenly on a bride who had a Lao Tong relationship. It was sort of a an implied guarantee that the family was getting more than just an ordinary bride. And the two Lao Tong would write to each other, compose poems, songs, and whatnot in this beautiful and secret script. This Nu Shu, or women's script, it was as if they created it with embroidery and calligraphy in mind. It's so wispy and delicate in its appearance, with elongated, stretched letters. It looks more like an embellishment than a phonetic symbol. Again, there were about six to eight hundred of these uh, that were commonly used by these Yao women to write their new shoe script. The highest form of the new shoe script was manifested in what were called San Zhao Shu. In the old Chinese tradition, San Zhao was either the third day after a wedding or the third day in a newborn baby's life. Both have their customs and rituals associated with San Zhao. In Jiangyong, where these women lived, on San Zhao, the third day after their wedding, the newlywed bride would be presented with this San Zhao Shu, or third day book. It was also translated as a third day missive or third day wedding book. This San Zhao Shu, third day book, it was specific to this one culture, tucked away in the corner of a county you probably never heard of until I just mentioned it. A bride received this book from her sworn sisters, and her mother, too, would have written in it as well. And in this secret script that only the bride could read, her husband couldn't read it, these women, in solidarity, would wish the new bride all the best and offer up words of strength in the face of what they all knew was a life of duty and sacrifice and often despair. And a third of the San Zhao Shu's pages were used to write all these best wishes, poems, songs, loving thoughts. And the rest of the San Zhao Shu's pages were left blank and served as a kind of diary or journal for the woman to record her thoughts, poems, or, you know, secret thoughts in her new Shu script. Even if her husband found the diary, he couldn't read it. It was always cloth-bound. Well, what else was there? Of course it was cloth-bound, hand-stitched. The San Zhao Shu, perhaps more than anything else, served as the defining symbol in this female culture. When the woman died, the book was burned or buried with her so that she may continue to have it with her in the afterlife. So as you can imagine, not many have survived into our day. In her San Zhao Shu, a woman could safely and securely express herself, as one might keep a diary or book of inspirations. She would always write it in the secret new shoe script, and throughout the years, this book, written by and presented from people so special in the girl's life, would provide solace and an outlet of expression. The 18th, 19th century thing to do in that society for these women of a particular sisterhood would be to hang out, do this intricate and beautiful needlepoint embroidery on handkerchiefs, and on fans they would write poems or something that might have some particular significance. A lot of the daily tasks for these Yao women could be done while they were sitting around chatting with each other. These were their good moments. These women never worked in the fields. They had bound feet. How could they? So their life pretty much was kept 
within the confines of a very small geographic environment. Perhaps the day she got married would be the first time ever in the girl's life that she left the village she was born in. When a lot of traditions began to break down in the late Qing and into the Republican era, keeping Niu Shu going was not a big priority. As education slowly expanded into the countryside to include girls, the whole need for Niu Shu took a big hit. You know how it is. The new generation starts to see other options... And when reforms begin to make it as far as places like southern Hunan province, the chance that you were born a girl and might receive a basic education wasn't so far-fetched. And once girls became literate, something like new shoe didn't become so important or necessary. A couple generations is all it takes. By the time of the Xianfeng Emperor or Guangxu, late in the Qing, it was already clearly the end as far as this shard of Chinese culture was concerned. First came access to learning for girls. That didn't come all at once, but the whole idea took hold during the reforms of the late Qing. That was the warning bell for new Shu writing. Later on, after the invasion of China in 1937, the Japanese occupiers who chanced upon this language took measures to suppress it. They did this to avoid anyone trying to use this new shoe is some sort of secret code to pass clandestine messages. Same thing during the Cultural Revolution. It said during the heat of the madness that some old woman once passed out in a railway station somewhere and the authorities went through her belongings and found her Sanjiao shoe or some paper with new shoe script written on it and they ran her through the old Cultural Revolution ringer before they let her go. Same thing. Whatever it was that she had written down, there was no room for it in the new China. So Niu Shu, besides falling victim to the changing times, took a hard left and right hook that almost but not quite wiped Niu Shu from the face of the earth. Do you remember when Frank O'Harris caught that pass from Terry Bradshaw? December 23rd, 1972, the Immaculate Reception, one of the all-time great moments in sports. I watched it live that day. I use this analogy to describe what happened with the new shoe language. Just as the survival of the written script came down to the last of the Mohicans, just as the gates of extinction were about to slam shut, there came a renewed interest in new shoe. Scholars in China and even Japan who, for the love of pure knowledge alone, dedicated years of their life to learn about it and took steps to revive new shoe and to preserve it. When all was looking like this language was going the way of so many others that rubbed up against modern society, suddenly it began to make somewhat of a comeback. People today, especially around Changyong County, are learning from teachers who can still write new shu, and young kids, and some not so young, I imagine, are learning about this secret written language of their ancestors. But you know how it is. Some young people in China today are learning new shu, but... It's purely out of interest. A mission to learn, like one might learn about anything. How to use Photoshop, how to cook Indian food, how to install electronics in your house. It's learned for the sake of filling that void where knowledge was missing. Learning it and living it are two different things. The meaning is all gone today. Though the new shoe language is having a revival of sorts, the meaning behind it is gone. That part of the language, its whole raison d'etre, has perished from this earth. And I suppose if I was a woman, I'd say, just as well, and goodbye, and good riddance. 
And your Shu culture shows us, who appreciate Chinese history, that amidst that oppressive way of life, there was still great beauty. So that's what I wanted to look at today. I wanted to mention Yang Huan Yi. When I said the last of the Mohicans, she was it. The last reliable link to the world of New Shu culture. She passed away in 2004. Madame Yang was born in 1909 in Jiangyong County. The last emperor, three-year-old Pu Yi, sat on the dragon throne at the time. In the U.S., that was the end of TR and the beginning of Taft. Yang Huanyi was born into a world that still had a place for Nishu. Where she grew up, it was still a living custom when she learned it. So Yang Huanyi got to live it, the last woman of the final generation of her kind. Let me read from her obituary. This is taken from Xinhua on September 23rd, 2004. Quote, China's last inheritress of the mysterious Nishu language probably the world's only female-specific language, died at her central China home earlier this week. She was in her 90s. Yang Huanyi learned to read and write the language as a little girl. Chinese linguists say her death has put an end to a 400-year-old tradition in which women shared their innermost feelings with female friends through a set of codes that were incomprehensible to men. Yang was born in Jiangyong County, where many people believe the language originated. Before her marriage, she used to exchange letters in Yu Shu with Gao Yinxian, the eldest of the seven sworn sisters in the county who were the most authoritative speakers and writers of the female-only language. Though Yang herself did not join the sworn sisters, she did spend three years with them to learn the language and became its only surviving inheritress by the end of the 1990s, after all the seven sisters had passed away. Yang was invited to Beijing in 1995 to attend the United Nations Fourth World Conference on Women. The letters, poems, and prose she wrote were collected and compiled by linguists of the Beijing-based Tsinghua University into a book that was published earlier this year. Though some linguists are working hard to learn the female language, experts say Yang was more authoritative and her writing was more standard, original, and unaffected by Putonghua, or standard Chinese, or Han language, in which she was totally illiterate. None of Yang's children and grandchildren inherited her proficiency in the unique language. The gracefully written rhombic Shu characters are structured by just four kinds of strokes, including dot, horizontal, virgule, and arc, and can be spoken in dialect to describe women's misfortunes and inner feelings. Some experts presume that the language is related to inscriptions on animal bones and tortoise shells of the Yin ruins from more than 3,000 years ago, but no conclusions have been reached as to when the language originated. The language, among the first to enter the national list of China's ancient cultural heritage, has aroused keen attention from worldwide scholars. At least 100 surviving manuscripts are abroad, according to archive keepers in Hunan province. China has stepped up preservation of the language since the 1990s amid assiduous efforts to better protect the country's traditional culture in a globalized society. The Hunan Provincial Archives have collected handkerchiefs, aprons, scarves, and handbags embroidered with new shoe characters, manuscripts written on paper or fans, and calligraphic works. Among their collections are calligraphic works by Zhou Shuo Yi, 
a retiree in Jiangyong County who is believed to be the first man to learn the language in China. Zhou, after half a century of study, compiled a dictionary of new shu last year at the age of 79. The dictionary, which contains all the 1,800 ancient characters of the language, has complete stylistic rules and layout with pronunciation, glossary, and grammar, and is arranged in international phonetic symbol order. Each new shu character is followed by phonetic notation, notes, a corresponding Chinese character, and example sentences. End quote. Because Yang Huanyi made the choice in her early years to learn new shu, she was able to live the culture, and she allowed others to benefit as well from her knowledge of the secret language. She made a very modest income writing letters and sanjiao shu for other village girls in new shu. Not every girl in that sliver of Hunan province learned the script. If you wanted to submit secret prayers to the local temple gods, you had to say them or submit them in new shu. Respected Chinese-Canadian filmmaker Yang Yue-Ching did a 1999 documentary that profiled Yang Huanyi. The film was called New Shu, A Hidden Language of Women in China. Everyone rushed in in 1982-1983, thanks in part to Zhou Shuoyi. Zhou was a selfless crusader who dedicated his life to revive interest in this New Shu culture. He was local to Jiang Yong, knew the local Xiangnan Tuhua, and was familiar with stories of New Shu growing up. It was his report that miraculously got some eyeballs on it, and from that point forward, it's been a steady march to bring New Shu back to life. If you want to learn more about life in this part of China, of New Shu, and more about these women of Jiang Yong, let me encourage you to read a wonderful novel by Lisa C. I'm sure most of you have heard of her. Her latest book is called China Dolls. Lisa C.'s other books include Dreams of Joy, Shanghai Girls, Peony and Love, and On Gold Mountain. But the one I wanted to recommend is Snowflower and the Secret Fan. This one is a lovely historical novel that brings everything I just talked about to life. I'm reading it right now. Lisa C., ladies and gentlemen, I'll have a link to Snowflower and the Secret Fan on my website. Another Mandarin language tool for all beginners and intermediate level learners that I would like to personally recommend is MSL Master. MSL stands for Mandarin as a Second Language. Check them out at mslmaster.com. They have all kinds of useful resources to help you navigate the confusing waters of Putonghua. mslmaster.com. I'll put a link to that on my website. Okay, a little shorter than usual. Hope you don't mind can't eat a porterhouse steak every day. Sometimes you need a little kale and quinoa to balance everything out. Keep the yin and yang in balance. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from the Hilton Hotel high above 42nd Street in Times Square in lovely and idyllic midtown Manhattan. Don't ask me what I'm doing here. Do consider joining me next time, won't you, for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast. And let me just say, this next episode has been requested about a dozen times over the years. Finally, I'm getting around to it. Take care, everyone.